When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Can't you tell my love's a You are listening to The Three Questions with Andy Richter. And today... Uh, I'm very excited uh, to have a a fixture of yeah. You pick a medium, uh, and and he's a fixture. Painting, sculpture. <laughs> let me let me get my sculptures out. I'm talking to Nathan Lane today. Uh, hello, Nathan. Thank you for for being here. Hello, Andy. Thanks for having me. It does seem like everyone now has a yeah. podcast except me, but. I'm happy to be on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, they actually, I, well, I think, uh, podcast podcasting's best friend was the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One of the funny, one of the things that I loved was, you know, so many people are, you know, they keep publicity at an arm's length and they, you know, and they kind of, uh, maintain a mystique and, you know, and then two months of being locked at home and even the biggest stars were like, get me on the camera. Put me on the computer. I need to be on the internet and to be seen. I mean, because it was just hilarious how many big name people were all of a sudden. Uh, oh my God! Look, there's you know, there's Jessica Chastain. So much of my career has been built on maintaining my mystique. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's so true. Uh, I, you know, I, I, the, I guess was was Mark Marin really the the mothership, the first. Pod, what was the first podcast? He wasn't really like the first first, but he got in very early on the ground floor. There's a there's a couple other guys in comedy in L.A. here, like a guy named Jimmy Pardo uh, had a, a podcast very early. And oh, no. another a guy named Scott Aukerman, he started a company. Oh, sure. Um, sure. Because, I mean, I started going on podcasts because I knew these guys before I right. even knew what a podcast was. Yeah. And I learned my lesson going on Mark Marin's which was still pretty early because I talked very frankly about my family because I thought they're never going to hear this. And they heard it. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, his became sort of the most famous podcast for a yeah. while. Yeah, yeah. Which sure. actually segues nicely into what you're, one of the things you're here promoting is that you are in the new film, uh, Bo is Afraid, the new Ari yeah. Aster, uh, A24 film. And, uh, I saw that movie uh, in a screening and I loved it and you were great in it. And, uh, and, but I kept, all I could think was, is Ari Aster's mother still alive? 
Like, is she going to see this? Because <laughs> it is, it is about, it's like if, a, if your mother concocted your worst nightmare for you and then made you live it for three hours because it's yeah. the most anti-mother movie I've ever seen in my life. It's fantastic. Well, um, yeah, I, his mother is alive and well, and they seem to have a good relationship. <laughs> as, as he described it to me, it, it sounded perhaps a little passive aggressive, but nothing <laughs> like what happens in this film. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, only Ari and his therapist could tell you what he's really trying to say. I, I'm not quite sure. But it's, yeah, it's certainly a masterful piece of filmmaking. And yeah. Joaquin is just phenomenal. As yeah. Always. It's, uh, yeah, there's, he does so much acting, so much per wonderful, perfect acting, standing and saying nothing, just looking hurt and confused. <laughs> that's 90% of the movie. Like, what? And that's as a viewer. I think there's a lot of people will be like, what? Is for people that don't know, it's, it's a Fellini movie. It's a, it is, uh, it's surreal. You, you cannot take yes. this movie and think that this is meant to be reality. This movie is a long nightmare. Um, right. A, a very enjoyable, hilarious nightmare. I mean, some, well, some. I'm glad you found it funny because oh. you have a great sense of humor. And so I, I'm, it makes me happy to hear yeah. you. Yeah. I don't know if he intended it as such, but it, to me, it seemed mostly a comedy. Because there's just so much stuff that's so absurd. I think, no, I think that is what he was intending. But yeah. he has a very twisted mind. <laughs> uh, well, yes, he, and you know, he'll say that Midsummer was a laugh riot. You know, he thought that, <laughs> that was big time comedy for him. Yeah. So this, this is hell's a poppin'. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's. It, it's so funny because when you uh, you work with him and he's he's like the sweetest, the nicest guy, so compassionate and kind and yeah and and uh, and fun and smart and he's a very funny guy. But uh, you would never think that these things were lurking in that brain and and uh, that he obviously had to get out of his system. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, look if anybody who says it's well, it's a three-hour art house film by Ari Aster, starring Joaquin Phoenix. You know, it's this is a cocaine bear. It's not. <laughs> so you, right, right. You have to be up for a challenge. You yes. have to be. You know, want you want that kind of experience. Yeah. Um, you know, so it'll be interesting to see how it does. Yeah, and and you know he has this huge fan base, Ari. You know it's it's incredible how people. Well, I'm have... one of them. I think he's fantastic. Yeah. I think he's amazing. I really? mean, and I think the first movie I saw of his was uh, Hereditary, and I had to watch it twice because there was so much stuff that I missed. I didn't. I wasn't yeah. like he presents movies in a way that's kind of unique. Where whereas like with this movie. When I saw the bow is afraid, every frame, if it stayed for a second, I'd watch, I'd look at the entire frame to see like, <laughs> am I missing any clues? Is there anything in yeah. that poster in the right. background that I'm supposed to remember? Yeah. And there usually is. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, everything, every detail is carefully thought out. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, he's incredibly collaborative and, and, and certainly, you know, even though I thought it was beautifully written, he, you know, would have us improvise at times and, and play with things and, and, uh, yeah, I, but all of those details, especially in the production design and everything yeah, yeah. he's had his hand in and thought about and, and all. so he's really, it's all about the details. Yeah. After I saw the movie, I called people my dude for about, yeah. for about three days. You play a character who, a doctor who is helpful to Joaquin and helpful with a question mark in a, in a, in a parentheses. Right. And is yeah. he, a, he a doctor? A doctor. Right, right. Were you sure? Did you know if you were a doctor or not? Or, uh, Well, we discussed it. Yeah. Because I, I brought it up. I said, is he really a doctor or is he just, is he just trying to uh, fulfill a task? Yeah. And, and get money for it. Um, you know, it's, uh, and he felt he was a doctor. Yeah, uh, I I felt that he was probably uh, a doctor who was uh, uh, having some hard luck. That is, <laughs> practice. He, there was some several malpractice suits. Yeah, when you look at the the way the his his stomach wound was sutured, it's terrible. Yeah, it's just uh, uh, horrific. Is it hard? I mean, is it difficult? Because I mean, I don't know. You know how much kind of, uh, you know. Uh, what kind of technique you get into when you have a character in a movie. But, you know, I think everybody that acts kind of tries to think, who is this person? What is this person? And with a movie that's so uniquely itself and so particularly one person's view, is it difficult to make a character in a movie like that a real person? Uh, no. I mean, we certainly talked about uh, that there was Amy Ryan, the wonderful Amy Ryan. Yeah. We all talked about what their backstory was and what might be going on. And, and, and then we all sort of were <laughs> left to our own devices to figure out how we wanted to handle certain things. Yeah. And, uh, um, so yeah, I, I certainly felt like I, that my character, so I felt that I was, had urged my wife to do this. Yeah. Taking him in. And you also have to question, did she accidentally hit him with her van? Yes. I mean, the whole movie is like that. Is, is this real or is this not? Is this really yeah. happening? Yeah. Did she deliberately or did she deliberately do it? Yeah. My, my scenario is that she deliberately hit him. Yeah. Uh, because she was meant to find him and hit him. Yeah. I don't want to give too much away. Right. No, I know. Because... And also there are the, the, there are like chapters to this film. So our chapter, it moves from this Kafka-esque nightmarish opening to this sort of black comedy in the suburbs. Yeah. With this very, I mean, the, you know, as written, he's a very upbeat, you know, dad humor kind of fellow who yeah, yeah. loves grilling. Yeah. You know, they're very, you know, they say a little prayer. For before grace before meals, yeah, but, and he gives his wife a lot of pills, keeps her heavily medicated. Yeah, there's a lot of strange things going on. Sure is. Uh, ultimately, I just I felt in a way there, even though they seemed uh, initially, you think, oh, he'll he'll be okay now. These people will take care of him and nurse him back to health and get him home. Yeah, but 
really, uh, there's another agenda. And, um, yeah, I just think it's, they're playing roles. Yeah. And it's, it, and it's Amy who kind of breaks free of that and tries to warn him. Well, yeah. Something else may be happening. Yeah. Well, about an hour in, you kind of figure out there's no, that this guy is fucked. He's, uh, <laughs> Ari, in some in some interview, he said it. He wanted the audience to get into the mind of a loser. What it felt like <laughs> a loser, which rather harsh. I I sort of don't. I thought of him more as a victim myself. Yeah. What happens to him? But and maybe it. You know, he's a you know also a, a victim of himself and his own right. You know, erotic insecurities and but. Um, but also his mother, his mother, who is, is a seemingly wealthy woman, <laughs> has not helped him get out of uh -uh. a really bad neighborhood. No, no. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's you know, because it is, like I say, it's about a guy, ostensibly it's about a guy that's been so neurotically raised by his mother that his life is a mess, but then you also, and I think there's enough throughout the movie that you realize, yeah, but he also is kind of a coward and a, you know, and, and uh, yes. whether that's her fault, you know, because it does, it, it, I think it would be difficult to, for a movie like that to not just end up being kind of self-pitying, like, oh, the poor guy, you know, right. Um, and, I, but I don't feel like it's that way because there's so many different ways different points in the movie where you feel like oh no he's he could he could stop this if he wanted you know yeah 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 the moral is don't leave your keys in the apartment door <laughs> that's right that's right uh, beyond yeah. that everything would be great well this uh in this podcast i mean what i kind of do is kind of uh try to get sort of a sense of where people come from and 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 you know how it sort of affected the people that they are now and uh and you're a jersey boy i i hear i am jersey city new jersey and and was that where you were raised too did you grow up there too yeah pretty much uh later on after uh high school we moved to rutherford but yes i i was i grew up in jersey city and what what was your neighborhood like it was sort of middle class yeah you know uh, it was, uh, I went to Catholic school, Sacred Heart. Yeah. yeah, we lived very close to um, my grandmother. And uh, so we, we were in the same, like a block away or a block or two away. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was a very much a neighborhood, of, uh, you know, I was sort of Irish Catholic families. Yeah. But, you know, but a mixture of people too. I mean, I, there, there were, there were black families and. Did it start to kind of, did the name, was there white flight like in your lifetime? Because I know, you know, there's so many, especially on the East Coast, you know, people that lived on Long Island, you know, there was white flight from parts of Long Island and white flights from parts of Jersey. And, uh, you know, and, and is that an aspect? You that, know, I, it didn't, uh, I didn't seem that way. And, and yeah. so now I would say probably that neighborhood is, is primarily black or, yeah. And, or, Puerto Rican, or I'm sure it's it's changed, uh, you know, since you know I was born in 1956, so yeah, changed a lot since then. Well, so have you, to be frank, you know. Well, sure, yeah, yes, yeah. I have, I have. <laughs> <laughs>
spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When something happens to your car, you might say... But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my love's a crow? Did growing up so close to New York City, like, did it, do you think that it made New York more mysterious and magical or made it more approachable to you as you started to feel like you wanted to be an actor? It was something that I read about really more than it wasn't, it wasn't until later on that my, my oldest brother, Dan would, who took, he would take me to the theater to see plays. Initially, it was just reading about, I was quite fascinated by the, uh, I was a voracious reader and I was given a lot of books as a kid. And then, and I read, and then I started reading plays as well. I, I joined a a play of the month club called the Fireside Theater that would send me, you know, like the first play I got was uh, The Odd Couple by Neil Simon, Uh you know, with these black and white photos of Walter Matthau and Art Carney and. And, uh, it just, you know, and, and, and so all of that and reading about, I was fascinated by the Algonquin round table and these, you know, these very witty alcoholics, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, this sort of glamorous New York, uh, uh, at least on the surface of, of the thirties, you know, and, and, uh, the, these people who were, they were journalists or they were playwrights or they you know, or actors and they all gathered together and, and, and that fascinated me. Yeah. Um, you know, when I started going to New York, uh, uh, it was, it sort of terrified me. It seemed like a very frightening place to live when I was, when I, you know, it was very exotic to be taken there and to go there to see a play. It it was a little scary. And it well, and to be frank, the theater district was close to Times Square, which is, at that time, a pretty scary place to be. Yeah, yeah. You know, I went in the, well, I mean, I moved to New York in the late 70s, like 77, 78. But um, yeah, no, it was, it was, yeah, the theater district was for a long time. Yeah, kind of seedy. Yeah. But I mean, and also is, but that's the heart of the theater. Uh-huh. Broadway and and off Broadway. But um uh, yeah, New York was obviously it, 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 you know, I wasn't thinking, oh, I, I used to, when I was taking the plays, I thought this was perhaps something I could do. 
or at least I was just fascinated by it and, and sitting in the dark and people telling us a story. But, um, you know, I thought, you know, there was a part of me that thought, oh, I'd like to try that. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's how it started. And all, all of that, it's, it's all based in New York. And when eventually when I thought about maybe I could do it as for a living, you know, I knew that that's where I would have to, to go. Yeah. Did you start acting in high school then? Is that kind of when you started to um, practice and take it more seriously? And Well, my, you know, there's a whole other, you know, Eugene O'Neill side to my dysfunctional Irish Catholic family <laughs> where, you know, my, my father was an alcoholic. He died when I was 11. And then my mother had a breakdown. She was and eventually was diagnosed as bipolar. And, uh, and I had two older brothers, Bob and Dan, and they had, they had, uh, uh, gotten married, moved out and gotten married. So my brother, Dan sort of felt like, I think he felt he had to be a father figure to me. And how much older he's about to turn 80 and I'm okay. 67. Okay. So he, um, he had some, he was in college and he had some friends who were doing a play. And they needed a kid to be in the play. I was, I guess, eight or nine or something. And he uh, said, my, my kid brother will do it. He just volunteered my services. And he came <laughs> home and said, yeah, would you like to be in a, in a play at, at, at Jersey City State College? And, and I, I said, oh, I don't know. And he said, well, you're going to be in one. And, <laughs> and so I, then I found myself in this play. And, and then he must have just felt... You know, that I had a, you know, I had an interest in the arts. Uh, I, I, yeah. I that's why he was doing this and taking me to see shows. Uh, eventually, that's what he did, took me to see plays in New York. But, yeah, uh, you know, sometimes he was in, he would later on when he was teaching, he would, you know, sometimes he took classes or students to see plays or he, but he, and he often took me and, and not, you know, not like real commercial fare. He, he took me to see uh, uh, a, a, a British farce called Black Comedy that starred uh, Geraldine Page and Michael Crawford. He took me to see Alan Bates in Butley. He took me to see Hair. Yeah, these are pretty complex, pretty complex plays to take a kid to. And a little off-Broadway production of uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That was a very long-running, oh successful production. So, yeah. um and, you know, it was sort of where I remember, uh, I do remember seeing that play and uh, this actress, and I can't recall her name now, but who played Nurse Ratched. And she was, she was really great in it, this actress. And she was in it for, for most of the run of this play. But I remember, and he, we went back to see it a couple of times because we liked it so much and he loved it too. And when they were different people playing McMurphy. The McMurphy yeah. character in what we now know is the sort of the Jack Nicholson role. Right. And this one night she came, she said, there's this very dramatic scene where uh, the, uh, this young character of Billy, I feel it's Billy, I forget his name, but he's committed suicide. And it's, it, she's really caused this. And you saw that he wanted to, to choke her. And uh -huh. then he went, he went for her, McMurphy, and put his hands around her neck. And I remember someone in the audience yelled out. It was such a tense moment. He yelled out, kill her, kill her. A little ancient Rome. <laughs> Christian with the lion. Right, right. 
it was so, I just remember like, wow, the theater can have that effect. You can have that effect yeah. on, they can be so emotionally involved. They're literally like uh, yelling out. Yeah. I, I, that is kind of amazing because it's, it is different than, than film because film, you're not present with the people that are telling the story. There's, you know, there's a, a remove. So I think it can be a little easier for it to reach kind of a dreamlike state that you've been drawn into. Whereas with the play, these are other human beings and you're in a room with these other human beings. And I don't know. I just think it's, at least for me, I've always found it easier to lose myself in a movie because it seems more private, you know? I mean, you certainly can lose yourself in a play. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you've done theater. I came from improv. Yeah, I've done some theater. Um, not not a ton. I did um, in New York, like a David Sedaris wrote a play and he wrote a part for me in a play. And I had done a lot of shows that we sort of wrote as a group in Chicago. Um, but right. they were all kind of comedy. But I didn't, I only took a couple of acting classes in college. And I, 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 I wanted to be an actor, but a, I don't think I could admit it. It seemed too fancy and too self-indulgent, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it was, you know, because there is, you are saying, I want everyone in the room to be quiet and listen to me. You know, there yeah. is a, there's a certain amount of self-regard that's inherent in, <laughs> in even doing it and even getting up there. You're like. Well, all these people are going to want to see me and hear what I have to say. So I'm going to yeah. do it. But I want to have cards made up and say, Nathan Lane, fancy and self-indulgent. <laughs> <laughs> they have to be nice. So they have to be like the raised yeah. letters and really nice card stuff. Very nice. Yes. Um, but I went to, I went to film schools and, and so I kind of always was kind of pushing towards acting in movies, you know, and that was kind of, and as time has gone on, I've done live stage shows, but I, I like the, the sort of, but like a little gang of people going around and making this story that then they'll cut together and put together later. Um, and you know, when people will ask me, you know, like how much I played to the audience for all those years on the Conan show. And I always say the most rewarding laughs for me were when I could see the cameramen laughing and trying you know to not I, laugh because they saw every every bit of my bullshit over the years so if, if i could sort of reach them i always felt like that was something more yeah. because certainly you were more than a sidekick you were sort of conan's secret weapon you were there oh thank you thank you something hilarious and witty yeah thank you well it was yeah it was a fun gig it was a fun gig and you know People, when they've complimented me about my batting average, I say, yeah, but I only swung at pitches that I wanted to. I could let, <laughs> I could let a whole show go by and not say anything if, you know, there wasn't the opportunity. So it is a, I mean, I appreciate, I appreciate that people liked it, but do you think, do you think that, because it's, I, I'm struck by such a, it's such a loving thing of your brother to do that, to see that you have an interest in something maybe before you even realize you have an interest in it and to then nurture that. I, I, I mean, it's, it comes from such a place of love and caring and caretaking. Oh, both of my brothers, I've told this story a few times, but they took me out to throw a football around at one point 
And, uh, and so we were, he, they were throwing the football to me and I would throw it back and we did it, you know, a few times. And, and then I caught the football and I stopped. I, again, I was around 10, something like that. And I called them over and they said, what's wrong? Is are you okay? And they said, I said, yes, but listen, I am not a sportsman. <laughs> I said, okay. All right. Well, let's go get some ice cream. I had other, uh, you know, I was going in a different direction. Yeah. I have a 22 year old son and he was my first child. And w w I felt this kind of societal pressure to go out and toss the ball around with a kid, which I never, the person that tossed, tossed the ball around with me was my mother. So I didn't really exactly <laughs> have the, the same paradigm that everyone else had. So, okay, you know, I got him a mitt and I like baseball, but I'm not a big, I'm not a big sportsman myself, but we went out and try, we were playing catch for about five minutes. And then my son said, can we just stop? Can we just stop this? Uh, he, he's like, I want to go in and draw. And I was like, go on in and draw. And then I didn't feel like, I was like, okay, well, you know, at least we're on the same page with this playing catch with dad stuff. Well, it's so it was sweet that he was uh, able to say that to you that, you know, yes. I, I want to go in and draw, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I never, it drives me crazy when people try to force their kids into stuff, you know, I mean, right. Uh, yeah. But then you never know whether to push or whether to let, especially with sports, because my kids playing team sports, they both were like, nah, -uh, no way. And then I respected their wishes. And there's times I think, well, was I, was I supposed to force them? Like I, you know, it's too late now, but you know. Yeah. It's, there's something good about it, about the, the you know, finding out yeah. like, to be on a team, to be part of a team, Yeah, and, you know, but it's, yeah, no, you don't want to force that on anybody. It's funny. I, I'm yeah. sure you've heard of Cheetah Rivera, the sort of legendary yes. Broadway yes. uh, performer. A and she, firecracker. She, firecracker, for sure. And yeah. she just turned 90. She just wrote a memoir. And she talks about when she was a child, she was just like running, you know, always running around the, the living room. And she, at one point, crashed, broke the coffee table. Um, you know, she was dancing on it or carrying on. And, and her mother looked at her and said, uh, you know, you've got to calm down. But then she took her to, a, a, she immediately said, I know what I'm going to do. And she took her to like a dance school and enrolled her. And she had never really, you know, she hadn't shown any interest in dance per se. She just right. had a tremendous amount of energy. But it was her mother who thought, I know, I know where she can put this energy into something positive right. and artistic. You know, it's right. sort of a, a smart thing to do for right. her life. Yeah. Yeah. I hope she didn't get by another glass coffee table after that. Because... No, no, no more glass coffee tables. <laughs> <laughs> when something happens to your car, you might say, But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? 
but working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my love's a grow? There's the difference between the urge and the drive to do something and then the time when you start to feel like it's doable and that you have a facility for it and that, and that you're good at it. And I'm wondering if you can describe what that evolution for you is like, you know, wanting to do this thing and then starting to feel like, okay, I can do this. Because also the thing of, I can do this for a living is a huge hurdle, you know, because you just, you go oh, into yeah. this business thinking, nah, you hear about how t- hard it is and it is hard and it's all, none of it's a lie. So, you know, to even do it is, is a little, a little crazy actually. Yeah. That's a good question. The urge going from the urge to doing it, to wanting to do it, to actually thinking you can do it. Yeah. Well, that's a long process. Yeah. <laughs> It's a very long process. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, I, I could say it's only, it's only in the last decade or so that I feel like, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. Wow. And so I've been doing this for, I've been a professional actor for 48 years. Yeah. You know, I've gone through various stages of, yeah, I, I think I could do this. I think I'm funny. Yeah. That was my foot in the door. I was yeah. funny. I was funny, you know, uh, just people looked at me and would laugh. <laughs> I came on stage. I was just something funny yeah. about me. And my sense of humor and, and quick-wittedness would, you know, certainly add to things. And, you know, at one point, this is over a long period of time, but I did a play with... Uh, I, I did this play like three times. I did it in uh, at the Long Wharf Theater in New Haven, Connecticut, and then in L.A., and then we did it off-Broadway in, in New York. But it's, it was a play called The Common Pursuit by Simon Gray, who was a, a wonderful writer, kind of an underrated writer. And uh, he, uh, he and I became good friends. And he actually was, you know, my brother took me to see Alan Bates in Butley. That was his sort of big first really big success. And, and eventually I did it on Broadway many, many years wow. later. But he, he and I were in New Haven and we're doing this play of his. And it was, a, I, you know, I had a great part. It was just a wonderful part for me. And the character would just fit me perfectly. And, and he said to me, um, we were drinking heavily in a bar in New Haven. And he said to me, you know, Nathan, you know, he said, you're going to have to make a decision. Do you want to be a great comedian or do you want to be a great actor? And he was talking about this performance that we just given. And I, I, I don't know what I, I must've been pushing for laughs or doing yeah. things just to be funny because I could. Yeah. Um, and he said, I think you should be a great actor. And uh, I sort of knew what he was trying to tell me. And so that had an effect. And then you know, I, I, you know, I look, I, I've been very lucky. I've gotten, I, I've, I've done, I've 
I worked with some tremendous writers and directors and, and gotten some, you know, it, you can't do anything unless you have the part, unless right. you have some right. part, you know, that does a lot for you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you get a great part, I mean, when I, I did a play, the first play I did with Terrence McNally, who became a long time, a very close friend and a long time collaborator. Yeah. He wrote a play called the Lisbon Traviata uh, that was done uh, off Broadway. And when I did it, I, 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 when I was asked to do it, I was far too young, but they couldn't find as someone to play this part. And I read it and I was like, this is, this is one of the greatest parts ever written. It's yeah. like, it's unbelievably funny. And it was, all, it's all about, you know, it's about these two uh, opera queens. The first act is just them talking about at, at that time, in that time period in the, when we did it in 1989, this sort of lost recording that Maria Callas did of La Traviata in Lisbon. Yes. And so he, he's the one friend says to my character, I, I have the recording. I just bought it. They just put it out and I'm desperate to hear it. So the whole first act is about me trying to get this record in my apartment so I can listen. And then you find out about their lives and their whole long personal history and so forth. And, and it's just a tour de force, you know, yeah. and, and so, um, and with Terrence's work, I was just, it was just one of those things where I picked it up and I went, I know exactly who this person is. I know exactly. And I knew what, you know, Terrence's sense of humor and his use of language, he, you know, he loved language. He, and he, you know, so this person would talk and talk and talk and there were long conversations on on the phone you know which i've over the years i've become an expert at doing phone calls um it's one of my <laughs> one of my special skills one of my specialties. right there on the resume yeah uh it was one of those parts that just yeah. and it was it it and it's sort of the show the play that put me on the map in a way i had been doing things you know i made my broadway debut in 1982 but that play really um established me in the theater community and, and yeah because it was such a tremendous role that was incredibly funny but also very poignant and um and so and that was sort of the big you know that's where i started to i remember i remember i had said to terrence um i had this long monologue and we did the play we did it at manhattan theater club then we did it it moved off broadway and then eventually we did it in Los Angeles, I did it with Richard Thomas there in San Francisco and then at the Mark Tate. Uh -huh. And I remember when we opened, you know, and I had always had trouble with emotion, with, you know, finding emotion within myself and, and, uh, and getting you mean on stage or off stage or yeah, both on stage, on, on stage. Yeah. We got to this, uh, I had this speech, I'm on the phone and I'm talking to this young man about who's basically said, well, who is, who was Maria Callas? And so he would start to tell him and what she had meant to him in his life and how, you know, he sort of knows how ridiculous it is. But then he tries to explain Collis's artistry to this person who doesn't really quite get it. Right. He gets angry and then tells him off and hangs up. But there's <laughs> this sort of emotional. So it's a long speech and it, it gets emotional. And when we, we were in Los Angeles and I, I, and I had done this speech 
I don't know, hundreds of times. And I talked about Collis so much. And I, I suddenly got incredibly emotional. It just, I, I could barely talk doing it. And I, you know, and I started to understand sort of where that was coming from and how to summon it. And, and also, you know, I also started to figure out how you have to have reserves of that on hand, yeah. you know, that you can go to, um, in your work in terms of emotion. And yeah, there was another level where, you know, I've talked, I've told, I've talked about this a lot, but there was a moment I was doing a play, a, a musical called The Addams Family, which had been, it was reviled by the critics. They hated it. And, uh, and yet the public liked the idea. They wanted to see it. Yeah. And so I, I was in it for a year. And, uh, and at one point, this, uh, the, the guy they used to write for the Times, Charles Isherwood, he wrote a very complimentary piece about and a career assessment piece about me. But he, in it, he referred to me as the, uh, the greatest stage entertainer of the decade, he said. Oh, wow. Now, and of course, I could find the dark cloud in any silver lining. And right, the, word, of course. the word entertainer irked me as if, well, what does that mean? What am I? Yeah. Al Jolson? Yeah. Whatever it was, it, it yeah. made me a little crazy. And, it, 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 and, I, <laughs> and I guess, and I guess it's, it provoked me to, you know, I felt like I was at a crossroads. I was, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck in this, this musical. That's, you know, a lot of terrific people involved, but it just didn't work. And, you know, you're making the best of it and entertaining people. But I thought, is that all there is? And, and, and I wondered, could I shift people's perception of me a little? They all, they all want to see me just as this, whether it's a comic actor or an entertainer. Or I'm just, I'm just that guy. Or they just associate me with musicals or the birdcage, you know. Um, and, and I thought, I, I have a lot more to offer. And certainly over the years, I had done plays by serious playwrights who, sure, humor and drama. It wasn't like I hadn't been acting. But people had seemed to forgotten that, or at least they had put me in, in this box. And yeah. so I made this decision to see if I could shift that perception just a little. And I, I read an interview with Brian Dennehy and Robert Falls, who had a long collaboration in the theater in Chicago at the Goodman. Uh-huh. Where they did, in, in particular, The Death of a Salesman and Long Day's Journey. Yep. But Brian would always go there. Brian was a longtime friend of mine, and he would always go there to kind of, it was really, that's where his heart was. He would go and do these great, great, impossible plays with Bob Falls. And so I read about this interview and they were talking about revisiting. They had done The Iceman Cometh in 1990 and Brian had played the, the role of Hickey, the part Jason Robards, you know, did and, and sort of changed his career with that performance. And they were going to revisit it and maybe he would play this other part of Larry Slade. And they were talking about maybe doing the play again. And I thought, that's, that's what I should do. I should play Hickey in the Iceman Comet. That would shake things up. Yeah. You know, I had had a conversation with, um, I had worked with Ken Branagh and he had said to me, we had talked about this very issue and he said, well, you can't just talk about these parts. You have to go do them. Yeah. And it doesn't matter 
what people say, what you will learn will be life-changing because these are those, those parts will change your life and will learn so much. And it, so that's what you have to do. And so I finally did it. And I, I, I contacted Bob and I, and he said, well, there is no production plan, but if you would like to do it, let's do it. And so, you know, eventually we worked it all out and I went and did it. And, and it, it, it was Ken's words were prophetic. It, it changed my life and it changed really the way I approach the work because it's such that play is, it's just sort of a, it's a monumental piece. And that part is pretty impossible. It's an impossible part. It's, but yeah, such a mountain to climb and it asks of you everything. And, and, uh, and then, you know, in the, the last act, you, you, you have to talk for 30, 40 minutes. You have a, you know, essentially a monologue where you tell your life story. So yeah, that was, uh, the be- beginning of a whole new, uh, change in, in my work and in how I approach things and, and because of doing the O'Neill. When you say it, it changed your approach. Could you describe what that, what you mean by that? Uh, you know, within that particular play. I, I knew in advance I was going to do it. So I had about 10 months and, you know, I first of all learned it, which is, it's an enormous role. Yeah. I worked with an acting coach, which I had never done before. This uh, wonderful uh-huh. coach, Larry Moss, um, which was incredibly helpful. And, I, you know, and I had read everything that was ever written about the play or the productions of it and, 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 and the you know, from the original Broadway production to the Robards off-Broadway production that Jose Quintero directed that changed the reputation of the play. I knew everything there was to know about the play, Eugene O'Neill, you know, when he wrote it and what he was after. Nevertheless, you do all of that. And, you know, what happened was, so we opened and it was a big success in Chicago. It was, it was just sold out for the entire run. Yeah. You know, I had said to Brian, you've played this part. So now, you know, because you, you show up, you rehearse for six weeks, you have nine performances because it's a it's a regional theater. And then you open. And yeah, I because I was doing it. They all showed up. The New York Times showed up. Everybody showed up to review this thing after nine performances, which is nothing with a play. Yeah. Uh, nice man cometh. But I said to Brian, tell me, give me some notes. And he said, he said, you're doing great. And he said, but, you know, you had to prepare the way you did because it's such a, uh, an enormous role. But he said, now what I would say is throw it all away. Just let the play happen to you and see where that takes you. Don't feel you have to reach certain heights, you know, because of however it's written or because, you know, that's what Jason Robards did or, uh, you know, it's, yeah, you let the play happen to you. And then, so I started to do that and it was sort of, and, and sort of certainly had a couple of breakthroughs through the whole run of it. And, um, you know, it's just a, a really, uh, it's just, you know, I mean, it's not like I haven't done, always done preparation, but a kind of intensive preparation like that. Uh-huh. And then, and then also, but also as you get older, it's sort of like, you also want to just see what happens with the people in the room. Yeah. It's about the collaboration and what they bring and what the, how that affects you. And yeah, you know, you must get asked for advice and, you know, you know, is there something, something that you've learned that you think is kind of like the sort of 
you know, the, the, the stitch it in a sampler and hang it above the, the mantle of your life, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, uh, it's, um, you know, it's the, the, take the work seriously, not yourself. And I think be kind, come in, come in prepared. Yeah. Come in prepared, be a professional, I would yeah. say, and come in with, you know, lots of ideas and enthusiasm and, and support. And, you know, I, I always remember the, you know, look, we, you know, we, we, it, it is something we love to do. I mean, I still love doing it. Yeah. And, uh, there's a, there's this old story that Jack Lemmon used to tell about when he went to his father to tell him he wanted, he was, he d- had decided he wanted to be an actor. Yeah. Father was a baker and he was a little nervous because, you know, his acting was sort of, especially at that time was sort of looked down upon and seemed like a frivolous thing to do with your life. And, uh, so his father listened to him and said, you know, he said he wanted to go to New York and, and his father said, well, do you love it? And he said, yes, yes, dad, I love it with, with all my heart. And he said, well, good. He said, because the day I don't find romance in a loaf of bread, I'll walk away. <laughs> uh, that could be taken two ways. Uh, uh, <laughs> 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 well, Nathan, thank you so much. Uh, I know you got to run. You've got other stuff to do. And I really appreciate you spending time on your day off. And, um, and that Bo is, uh, Bo is Afraid is, uh, is coming out. And then you've also got uh, a movie called Fucking Identical Twins. Another A24 film. I can't wait to see that on a marquee, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's an R-rated satirical absurdist queer musical based on the Parent Trap. That's awesome! I can't wait to see that. So, well, thank you, Nathan, and thank you so much for all your work and and uh, all you all you uh, the joy you brought me over the years. And uh, and thank all of you out there for listening. Uh, we will be back uh, next week. Bye bye. Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco production. It is produced by Sean Doherty and engineered by Rob Schulte. Additional engineering support by Eduardo Perez and Joanna Samuel. Executive produced by Joanna Salataroff, Adam Sachs, and Jeff Ross. Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista, and Maddie Ogden. Research by Alyssa Grawl. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to The Three Questions with Andy Richter wherever you get your podcasts. Can't you tell my love's a growing? Can't you feel it ain't showing? Oh, you must be a knowing. I've got a big, big love. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.